0: There are definitely some people in the community who are absolutely doing things you know and we understand the assignment <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is <laughs> open doors for for others because we have to combat this tokenization that is running rampant that I'm sorry let me get that was that the oven yeah
1: that's amazing that's great oh yeah are you baking you're something baking right, right now,
0: now? <laughs> <Yes>. I <laughs> That is the dough for my beignets that I will be frying when we finish.
1: Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we
2: peel back the layers of black culture that we rarely discuss in mixed company.
1: So, this week, y'all, we're in the company of the woman you just heard making beignets, baker and author Valerie Lomas. If you don't know Valerie, you should. She's a literal champion.
2: Valerie won the Great American Baking Show. She was the first Black person to win the franchise.
1: But in a very strange twist of fate, also the first winner whose show never aired on TV. Sounds wild. We know we'll get into it all on today's show. All right, so Valerie, we just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the show. Welcome.
0: Thank you. I'm super excited to talk to
1: y'all. So, for the listeners at home, you know, Valerie Lomas is the season three winner of The Great American Baking Show. And now, the author of Life is What You Bake It. It's a cookbook full of our own takes on cakes, pastries, cookies, and so, so much more. All that good stuff. I've tried a few, it's really good. And we're going to get into that. But I kind of want to start at the beginning, you know, before the cookbook, before The Great American Baking Show. You know, maybe even at the beginning of your blog, like what did you envision your career in food and food media might be like?
0: You know, I definitely did not start this with any type of concept that this could be my career. (laughs) I started my blog, which was a baking blog, the last year of law school. And I started it just as a distraction because I had a lot going on in my personal life. It was like the recession and, I was really frustrated about the job market, and I had just moved in with my older sister, and she had recently lost her fiance. So we were just looking for an outlet, and baking ended up being that outlet. And I found it to be meditative, and this passion that I had just kind of grew and grew. You know, and I went on. I, I graduated law school. I took the bar exam. I did not understand or even fathom that I could make a career out of this. But I just, I kept at it because it was something that I felt like I had to do.
2: I mean, you started at the top. Like, (laughs) let's talk about that. Like your first big claim to fame in the food world was like a pretty big deal. You were on the Great American Baking Show, which is a spinoff of the Great British Bake Off, which is like one of the biggest food shows in the world. You know, tell us the story of how you landed a spot as a contestant on that show. And also talk to us, like, what was the experience of shooting like?
0: I definitely wasn't looking to go compete on any type of competition show. (laughs) I, you know, I had had my blog for years and there had been ups and downs as far as my commitment to it. Mm. And I Mm -hmm. had, you know, recently gotten on Instagram and I was growing my following in a way that I hadn't experienced before and I was just again I was just baking all different types of things because I like to learn I'm from Louisiana so of course that's where I started I started with those you know classic southern recipes like mm. pecan pie but you know I evolved and wanted to just learn all of these different things and that's what was on my Instagram feed it was funny because at the time I noticed it was niche feeds that were really growing quickly. Hmm. I mean, if you were only making vegan smoothie bowls or <laughs> pies with <laughs> geometrical shapes or cookies that were highly decorated, just something in a very specific, like sub, sub, subcategory of baking. Gotcha. Whereas I was out here doing all the things and I, you know, I was wondering, like, am I shooting myself in the foot? I don't know. But I decided I was just going to continue to do it because I wanted to. And it's funny how that worked out because a casting director for the Great American Baking Show uh, slid into my DMs and was like, oh, hey, <laughs> we see that you make all kinds of different things, which is what you need for this show. You need to be able to make pie, but you also need to be able to make puff pastry. Mm-hmm. So... By me staying true to myself instead of just trying to grow a social media account, um, mm-hmm. I was able to end up getting discovered. Cast? Discovered, yeah.
2: <laughs> discovered.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I got discovered uh, by this casting director who basically fast-forwarded me through the whole audition process. And within weeks, I had been cast on the show And maybe, like, two weeks after that, I was on my way to London to film this show.
1: Like, what did you think that experience was going to be like coming into it? You said at the beginning of this, you didn't quite have any of this in mind. Once you're, like, chosen, what do you think is next?
0: The thing is, before I was cast on the show, I was all in. And I was all in in the sense that even though I was working a full-time job as a lawyer, I spent my mornings, my evenings, and my weekends just only thinking about cooking and baking and creating content for my Instagram account. And I mean, I spent my lunch breaks walking to Whole Foods and getting everything that I was gonna prepare that night. And then I'd prep stuff that evening, bake it in the morning, shoot it before I ran, ran off to you know make the subway to make it to work on time. And I definitely stopped making it to work on time. Um, my, yeah, my priorities were to get the shot that I needed. And, you know, on the subway, I would draft the caption. And as I was walking from the subway to work, I would, you know, post. So I was already all in. So by that time, I did know that I wanted more. And I knew that it was an opportunity that was going to end in either helping me (laughs) or hurting me, because I did think Man, if I go on here and I really screw it up and embarrass myself, um, everything that I've been working (laughs) for could just
2: kind of be poof. I didn't realize it was shot in London. Like, talk to me about the experience of shooting the show in the UK. I mean, this is this is a really big deal. There must have been a lot of pressure on you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I realized it was a big deal kind of from the beginning because the way the show was pitched to me was like, oh, it's going to air on ABC primetime. Um, And the slot that it was in was actually, like, Thursday at 9 p.m. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's, like, the scandal time slot. (laughs) Like, what? Um, So I was feeling like this was very serendipitous. But, you know, yeah, we we shot the show in England because it's the same crew Mm -hmm. and the same production studio that creates the Great British Bake Off. And, you know, we even had one of the same judges, Paul Hollywood. So... Mm -hmm. It was very oh, called like... Hollywood. I saw that. that's <laughs> legit. So legit. You know, and it's funny because baking in another country is very different, especially a country that uses the metric system and uses <clears throat> Celsius instead of Fahrenheit. <clears throat> so like if you're used to your 350-degree oven, you better like oh. pull out your calculator um, and figure it out. Um plus the ingredients are different. So like what we use as heavy cream, they don't have Heavy cream, they have triple cream, or double cream, mm-hmm. or single cream that all have different percentages of fat. And even the their butter has a higher percentage of fat, which you know. And baking it's technical, so yeah. it means you better like figure it out. How did you manage all that? I mean, you're a
2: lawyer, so I know you're smart. But I'm like, dang, that's a lot to do yeah. when you're trying to like win the competition
1: and Completely like away make home. sure you're
2: looking at the right cameras and everything like that.
0: So I realized that i had to rely on my baking instincts which isn't something i don't think i had ever like used them before Mm -hmm. it was always like okay let me call my mom or you know facetime her show her what i'm doing or or google and figure out whatever the heck but when you don't have those options um i realized i i have quite a bit of know-how if i just simply like trust that so if I were using, you know, say triple cream in place of heavy cream, you might have to add a little bit of milk to it to kind of get that percentage of fat that you're used to. Mm-hmm. So that it was, listen, it was a competition first and foremost above anything. I take that back. It was a television show first mm. and foremost. So it was like the entertainment factor, yeah. right?
1: <laughs> yeah. So
0: why make this easy on people? But yeah, after that, it was it was a competition, so...
1: Like you mentioned kind of in the book, uh, it was a particularly taxing experience on you as a person. Uh, I'm just curious, like, talk a bit more about that and like how you even kind of managed that.
0: You know, it's funny because we were all people who just like bake at home as a hobby. The premise of the show is you can't be a professional. So not only were or were we not professional bakers, but we were also not used to being on a set at a studio. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing about filming in England. You know, they don't have unions the way people have them here. So the hours wow. were long. You know, the first few days when it was like the full cast of 10 bakers, so that means the judges had to go through 10 of each thing, you know, and I think we left, yeah, we left our little apartment hotel at like four something in the morning and we got back at like 10 something or we might have even, I don't even remember but yeah, it was long, long days and um, it definitely was exhausting in a different way than I was used to because it's not that I haven't worked hard before or worked crazy hours before, Mm -hmm. but when you're doing it with many cameras in your face especially if if you're screwing something up because the producers they get on their little walkie talkies and they signal like all of the camera people to surround you to get it from every angle Um, so like you know it it was like having to be on in that sense and just the possibility of like really getting embarrassed and humiliated so that was definitely something that I thought a lot about.
1: Yeah. As it kind of continued to go on as you continued in the competition, I'm curious like where your headspace was in terms of like like what this means for me. Like I imagine first day, I, right, you know, I, I, I wash out first day, it's not that bad. You know, you know whatever. But like as you're deeper into the show, the stakes become higher. And so I guess I'm just curious like yeah, like where that took you to the point where you were nearing the final.
0: So honestly, like from the beginning, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going home. It wasn't like, oh, if I oh. if I just kind of disappear at the beginning, no one will see me. No. First of all, you can imagine why I stick out, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, I I felt that pressure from the absolute beginning. And that pressure for me, it didn't let up. I did think I wanted to get to the semifinals because it was French week and I majored in French in school. And I remember I wanted to speak French on camera. That was like a very ambitious goal, but I was like, I want to make it to French week. Um, and also, donuts were the second week. And before I went on the show, like I had made donuts a few times, but they were never great. And when I saw they were on the second episode, I was like, oh my gosh. I have to figure this out because I have to, like, get past the second episode. And yeah. you know, now I like now donuts are my thing. Yeah, they make a couple appearances in the book. There's a whole chapter on donuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and again, that just goes to show that, like, you know, with baking, it's something if you practice, you master it. I think people think that people are just born with some kind of baking gene. And that's not it. It's like anything else for you to get good at something. You just keep doing it.
2: So obviously, you know, you had this whole experience of being on the show and it was grueling and they had you guys working all these ridiculous hours. And anytime you made a mistake, I cannot imagine that. I can't process that. Anytime you make a mistake, you're getting swarmed by cameras. Um, (laughs) I I cannot imagine (laughs) working like that.
0: (laughs) No, it it was, and it was, it was really awful, but I developed a a strategy, which was (laughs) I started trying to ruin people's shots so, I would start like looking at cameras and making funny faces or if something was like really bad, I would like go to one of the little like freezers in the back and like try to like do whatever I was doing like they probably did not like me for that, but I did start trying to ruin people's
2: shots. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Somebody liked you because you won.
0: Okay, I'll tell but you. Talk who liked to us me. about that moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Paul Hollywood liked me and that's a good person to have like you. Um, so here's the thing, like I mentioned, we were all home bakers. So if you don't have that professional training, there are just going to be some challenges that aren't your thing. So everyone had weeks where they were kind of off. So that wasn't really a a deal breaker for anyone. Now I bake every day. I've baked three different things today. So I'm definitely more on the professional level now, but, um, Going into the finale, you guys don't understand just how, how happy I was to have like made it that far. Mm. And I just, I remember thinking the slate has been wiped clean. And if I show up and I nail this, I can win.
1: And you did. So, like, I'm curious, like, like, (laughs) you know, you have this moment. Tell us about that moment. Like, you have literally just, you know, won one of the biggest reality TV franchises, period, in, like, food or otherwise, in the world. Like, what does that feel like?
0: Um, So, I'll be honest. I knew that I had won before they said I had won. Mm. Because I knew I had nailed it. And I knew that if I showed up and did my best, I didn't have any competition. Mm-hmm. It, I knew I knew that. So when they announced me, it was, in a way, it was kind of surreal. And I actually, I think it was Aisha Curry who announced me as the winner. And, you know, it was September, but it was snowing because they brought in the snow machines. Ah. And they brought in, like, a gospel choir singing Christmas music. And I'm all bundled mm. up in a coat. <laughs> And a scarf. I think the scarf was actually set dressing because they were like, you don't look like you're cold enough. So they they pulled a scarf <laughs> from the set and wrapped me up in it. Um, and it really was a moment where so many different challenges I had been through in life, they just kind of all like came to one place and it was just kind of clear that, you know, I knew that my best is good enough to be the best.
1: Hmm. I imagine there was some time kind of in between receiving the win on TV and then like airing. And I'm assuming you couldn't like tell people about any of that. It's a unique experience So for you. I- I'm yeah. curious, like, what is it like knowing that you've accomplished, to be frank, some shit no one else has, but you can't talk about it?
0: Oh, boy. So honestly, like the day after I won... 'Cause my mom and sister, they had they had flown to London like literally last minute, like booked a flight to be there the next day. Cause that's how wow. things operated. And um, you know, we, we spent the next day just kind of like soaking it all up, going to tea in London. And then uh the very next day I, I flew home and I had to go to work immediately because I had taken, like, five weeks off of work. So uh, oh, there, were, there were bills right. to be paid, yeah. and there was, like, a hole to dig myself out of with my boss. So, um, <laughs> you know, it was like I had this delicious little secret. And it's funny because the lawyer in me is always looking for what can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And before we started filming, while we were filming... I was just like, okay, what's going to go wrong? But after we finished filming, I thought that I was, like, in the clear. So, um, you know, I came home. It was September. And then, like, weeks later, women started standing up saying, hey, we're not going to take this sexual harassment, sexual assault nonsense in the Hollywood industry and the culinary industry um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I watched these women and I I stood up and I cheered for them because, I mean, I live in Harlem. You walk down the street, you're going to get harassed by men and it's awful. And, you know, I can't imagine going to work and having to deal with that. But it was like we were experiencing this this changing in the tide and, you know, little did I know that this crazy experience that I have poured my whole self into was going to get swept up in the crosshairs of it all.
1: So it talks to us a bit more about what exactly like happened and what the fallout was.
0: So the show that we filmed, it had, you know, the cast was us 10 home bakers, two judges, and then Aisha Curry and Spice Adams were the hosts. And the two judges were Paul Hollywood and Johnny Iuzzini. And allegations started to roll out in November. Um, and the show was set to air in December. So mm. this was about three months after we had filmed. Wow. Um, and the allegations just started to come out about Johnny um, having sexually harassed women that worked in mm. his kitchen when he was a pastry chef in New York and so the show actually premiered mm. and it was a it was a double premiere a 2-hour premiere and that kind of put him a lot more in the spotlight yeah
1: front center i imagine which
0: caused press and acknowledgement of these allegations to pick up and at that point ABC decided that they were going to pull the show off of the network. So they canceled the show in the middle of the season because of the allegations against this guy.
2: I cannot imagine what that would have been like to know you are the show's first Black champion and that no one would see it.
1: Coming up, we hear about how Valerie rebounded found new ways to propel her career, and continue the mission of breaking barriers for other Black foodies. That's coming up after the break.
3: Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.
1: So, like, you've been anticipating this moment for, like, kind of, like, months, and it kind of becomes a part of this national movement of women demanding action. You know, that's out of your control. And it kind of steps on this moment for you. I'm curious, like, what what were you feeling there? I can't imagine what that experience might be like.
0: I mean, I felt like, oh, surely we can come to some solution. (laughs) Um, And because that's the kind of person I am, I'm like, oh, okay, well, like, let's just like come to a solution. But I realized very quickly that no one was all that interested in my ideas about anything. And the show's page that was online, it was like everything just started vanishing. Mm. Like, it never existed. Which I guess was easier from a PR perspective than having to explain anything. So when stuff just started, like, poof, vanishing, like, you know, from the interwebs and everywhere else, it just, it felt, to me, it felt ironic that this man had allegedly sexually harassed women And now there were even more women Mm. who were being affected by him. So, you know, I I started to call some friends because I went to school in L.A., so I have some friends who are in the industry as people in L.A. are. Um, And one of them, Lindsay Day, she connected me to a publicist who is her friend. And this publicist, her name is Joy, she basically took me on as a little, like, pro bono type client. And she got press about the story. Mm. The fix that the network had decided was there was going to be a Facebook Live where I make a statement. And they wanted me to record this at home. And at the time, I lived somewhere that was very noisy. And I didn't have good lighting. And I was like, "Mm, that's going to be a little hard. And they were like, okay. So I went to the studio, I recorded it in the hallway. Because it was just this idea, I realized it was like, just sweep everything under the rug, sweep, sweep, sweep. So um, because I had this publicist assistance, she had media that watched that Facebook Live and then wrote stories about what happened. And then it ended up getting picked up by more media. And what that did was that opened the door for me to be embraced by the food media community because they were sympathetic to what had happened.
1: I'm curious, like, how did you transition that? So in, like, 2017, you know, you won this contest. It's 2021, you know, and you're releasing your cookbook, Life is What You Bake It. Like, talk me through, like, what happened in between that loss and right now that kind of has brought you to this moment.
0: You know, during that interim period of having won the show, and then when I expected the show to air, I got a book agent, and I was working on a book proposal. And then when the show got canceled that agent told me, you know, well, I don't really think that you can sell that book anymore. Mm. So I ended up connecting with an agent who did believe that I could sell the book. It was definitely like a number of little setbacks. And for that first maybe like five months after the show was canceled, Because I was exhausted, because I had been burning the candle at both ends for like a couple of years at that point, and I just mean that by working my full-time job and then having this passion, side hustle, (laughs) unpaid gig that, you know, just took up a, a whole lot of my time and energy, I just didn't have it in me anymore. So I would just kind of go to work and come home and be tired.
1: Yeah.
0: And it was because of that, I think, you know, fast forward, like, five months, I was sitting at work. And I was just like, you know what, this, this isn't it. Mm. Like, I don't know what it is, but it ain't this. And I, I felt like whatever opportunity that I could have stemming from winning this show, the window was getting smaller and smaller. And if I was going to be able to finish a book proposal, and if you've never written a book proposal, it is a hard thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I. That's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> I just I couldn't do it working my full time job. So I I was like, you know what? Like last year when I went through that process of going on the show. I bet on myself then, and I decided to do it one more time. And so, you know, I made the decision, like, I'm going to leave my job. I didn't have any deals lined up. At the time, I wasn't making any real money on social media. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, at that time, social media, it felt like a black hole where all of my energy went into. Mm. And it just wanted more. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. so six months after the show was canceled, I quit my job. It took another maybe four or five months for me to finished my book proposal cuz I got all kinds of sidetracked with sponsored content and all this other kind of stuff cuz it was like well now I got to pay these bills yeah. um and then a few months after I finished it we started shopping my proposal we as in my agent and I and I got a book deal and I have been working on that book since spring 2019. Wow. And it normally takes about two years from when you sign your deal to when your book comes out. And my book came out in September.
1: You mentioned that the agent kind of left in between and, you know, you had to find a new agent, like pitch the book again. I- I'm curious like, what the proposal was then. Obviously, we know we got Life is What You Bake It. But I'm curious, like, well, how you saw that the necessity of that type of change, like to have to kind of start over
0: you know, the door that was opened from all of this was being embraced by certain individuals in food media. I'm talking about people like Julia Tertian, hmm. who helped me connect with my agent. I'm talking about people wow. like Dana Cowan, who, when I had like all kinds of writer's block with my book proposal, she was like, well, you know, my calendar's pretty booked, but I'll meet you at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning at this cafe. And she was like, what's going on? And we talked for about an hour and a half and I left there with a plan. And she told me, go finish it this weekend and send it to me Monday and I will look at it.
2: These are heavy hitters. Yeah. Like these are people who are really big deal in food. Mm-hmm. And that's so incredible that they could really like see in you what was there and kind of be there as a reassuring presence for you.
0: It's interesting because when I was a lawyer, and I I practiced law for eight years, I never felt like I had a mentor, uh, someone who was really teaching me and guiding me um, in my career. And almost immediately, I had that with these women. Hmm. And it was just through having some type of like organic human connection that they chose to champion me and my goals and it can be very difficult especially when the path that you're on right you're out here like trying to cut through the trees and like forge your way because many of us we have our own unique journeys not only was i like the first black winner of this franchise but the first winner whose show never aired right Mm, so i'm out here trying to sell something and people are like but nobody knows who you are So having the support of people who do understand the industry was very valuable because, you know, Dana Cow, when she told me, she was like, you know, at the end of your book, you need to win. She was like, it needs to have a happy ending, which is a good thing because that's how I see it in reality. That's how I see my life.
2: And then that led us to the book that we have now, which is Life is What You Bake It, which is Such a lovely book. Like, I mean, the recipes in it are incredible. The photos are gorgeous. It's amazing to see your friends and family in the book, you know, on the pages with you. But also like your writing in the cookbook is so nice. You know, most people they're going to a cookbook for recipes, but this book really gives kind of like a window into how you became the baker that you are. And it's also just a really deep tribute to your family. Like it was your family, you know, as you mentioned in the book that birthed a love of cooking for you and also your relationship with your sister that reignited it as a passion. Talk to me more about like what happened in your lives. You know, you mentioned earlier that you were helping your sister through something very difficult in her life that got you back into using baking as a way to uh, make yourself feel whole and happy. But talk to me about like what happened in your life that made you bring your focus back to baking.
0: For me, it was just like the drudgery of law school. You know, I was in my third final year of law school. And the thing about the law is there's only one way to say something, you know, to make sure that you're communicating it effectively. And I had so much more I wanted to say and I wanted to share. And so by starting a blog, it was a way for me to do that. And I took pictures. I took them on my flip phone. They were very crappy, but it was 2009. So whatever. Um, It was a very different landscape then. And it was really just about me doing something I wanted to do. I just needed to do something different. And, you know, it was more than baking. It was baking. It was cooking. It was trying different types of wine. It was like all things related to food. And it really, it just became this sanctuary for me where I could just go and like have my like meditative peace.
1: You mentioned like baking growing up. It felt like your family's relationship to baking or and to cooking itself, you know, was pretty deep. Like, were there a few stories where actually you focus on your grandmothers, Leona and Willie Mae, and it seems like they recognized and supported in you from an early age. Talk to us about that.
0: My mother believes in tradition. She believes in carrying those family heirloom recipes and and sharing them with whoever is coming next. So my grandmother Willie Mae, who, you know, was born and raised and still lives in Prairieville, Louisiana, which is between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, um, there was this cake that she would always make for like Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas you know, all of the big holidays. And she would always make it because people would just like come through the door, like, where's the cake? And when I was about, I think I was 10 or 11, you know, I guess my mom picked up that I was into baking. And so she told me to go to my grandmother's house and have her teach me the cake. And so for my mom to have that foresight and, you know, she bought me a recipe book. So I went over there with my pen and my little recipe book. And my granny, she was just like so sweet. You know, she she showed me how she made her cake. And I, I've been making it since. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't just share my grandmother's recipes, but I painted some context to who they were as women. When I got this cookbook deal, I very much felt the weight of it and the sense that a lot of Mm. Black people don't get cookbook deals from major publishers, especially before summer 2020. I think my book might be the fourth or fifth with my publisher.
1: Mm,
2: Yeah, Clarkson Potter. It's like the biggest cookbook publisher that there is.
0: They publish some of the giants like Martha Stewart, (laughs) Ina Garten, Chrissy Teigen. Um, So, yeah, I felt the enormity of that and I wanted to make sure that Because Black people, and Black women especially, have been erased as far as our contributions to the American foodscape. So I wanted to make sure that I named the names of the people I knew who I got recipes from, Mm. and I gave them context as people, which is... Yeah, Granny Willie Mae made a great cake and as did Grandma Leona, but, you know, they also have gone through their share of challenges and they came out on the other side and they have contributed greatly to our society and they, you know, they did it with grace. So I really wanted to paint that picture and, you know, I brought it all the way home. I talk about my mother. I talk about my sister Um, I have my friends and the photos because I also just wanted there to be Black joy. I I wrote this for us. I was telling Eric,
2: (laughs) we were talking about the book this week. I was like, I don't know if I've seen so many Black people on the pages (laughs) of a cookbook in my life. And it's my thing. I love a good, I love cookbooks. And I have a lot by Black cookbook authors and recipe writers and chefs and the cover of your book is gorgeous and something that you know we also had just have been talking about internally on our team is just how rare it actually is to see a black person on the cover of their own cookbook you know I mean, especially cuz your book is about baking sometimes you can see a black person on the cover of their own cookbook if they're talking about southern food or soul food or there's some sort of like cultural Marker attached to it that's very specific that maybe the publisher thinks might help give some authority and push the book out. You know, I mean, I'm thinking like what you, Carla Hall, Lorraine Pascal for my UK peoples. um, Y'all are maybe the only black women that I've seen just be on the cover of their books. Like talk to us about how your book cover came
0: together. I knew that I wanted to be on the book cover with my natural hair Mm. and my unambiguous Black body because I understand the importance of representation. And, you know, even though only one episode of The Great American Baking Show aired, like, during that week, I had so many Black women reach out and tell me that they loved that I was rocking my natural hair because their daughters could see someone who looks like them. Hmm. So to me, that that was important. The thing about covers for cookbooks um, <laughs> is most people don't get the final say in what that cover will be. Um, really? Hmm. Really. Um, so the consensus was there was me glazing this pound cake and it just, it said, this is the cover. And I was like, okay, but (laughs) you can't see my hair in that picture. And to me, that's like really important. So there was a lot, there was a lot of back and forth. Like I was putting my heels in like, oh no, no, no. Natural hair (laughs) is as important.
1: You mentioned like 2020 before, as like a point where things felt like they were kind of shifting for what was possible for like black folks in food. And, you know, I think like when I hear 2020, there's a lot of big events you can kind of <laughs> pivot to. But, uh, you know, but I think specifically it feels like the racial reckoning that popped up around the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Maude Aubrey, but also seems like more specifically when it comes to food, the implosion of Bon Appetit in 2020. It felt like that was kind of when this. Food media reckoning was like burst open, but it had been going on for a while. I feel like the seeds have been sowing for a minute. You know, even Brittany and I were talking about how Nikita Richardson was writing about a lack of Black food critics in like 2018. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and so many Black chefs and food writers have been kind of raising their voices about just the difficulties and racism that exists within the space. To step back just a little bit, like over the past five years, being a Black woman entering food media, like. What has your experience been? Like, how do you think about the challenges or opportunity of what it means to be there?
0: It's definitely been challenging. Even though I see the problem within food media, I know that the problem is societal. Because it was the same thing when I was a lawyer. You go into rooms Mm. and you're the only one. And, you know, people assume that you shouldn't be there. I was a, a judge for the James Beard Awards two years ago. And, you know, at the awards dinner, I can't tell you how many people came up to me and were like, so why are you here? <laughs> uh, mm, wow. It's like, uh, I'm wow. here because I'm in this industry just like you are. Yeah. But yeah, there, there can be this assumption that we are not supposed to be there because we have rarely had the visibility And the tokenization in the food media industry is real strong. And that tokenization, I think, is extremely problematic. And I think it just kind of almost reflects like a lack of due diligence on the part of some gatekeepers and decision makers.
2: One of the things that's been the most helpful, I think, for me and Eric, and I think also probably a lot of Black people (laughs) across different industries, is that when dealing with like the institutional racism of your field or of your workplace, is having, you know, Black colleagues, sometimes people who've been in the game longer than we have, who we can kind of like lean on. And, you know, you talked about, you know, some of the mentorship that you've been able to find as a result of continuing and pushing forward in your career in food in food media. But I wonder, like, what's the Black food community been like for you? Like, are there any Black food mentors that you look to for counsel, advice, people to (laughs) vent with? Like, do you have a squad? Like...
0: (laughs) The Black food media community is aware of the problem. I absolutely have a mentor, Jamila Robinson. She's the food editor at the Philly Inquirer, and she's the chair of the journalism committee for the James Beard Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, And she has definitely opened up doors for me and other Black folks. And, um, you know, Kwame Onwuachi, he's a chef, Mm -hmm. cookbook author, TV personality, and so much more. And, you know, he has a heart to cultivate these relationships within the Black food media community. So much so, he actually orchestrated a food and wine conference that he presented called The Family Reunion. And it was to showcase Black chefs and food people. (laughs) And it did so at the same caliber that the food and wine has their other fancy pants conferences because black folks are bougie, too. And we will go out <laughs> and, you know, spend money for these <laughs> these expensive food conference tickets and stay stay at the the fancy luxury hotels also. So um, there are definitely some people. In the community who are absolutely doing things, you know, and we understand the assignment, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is <laughs> open doors for for others, because we have to combat this tokenization that is running rampant that I'm sorry. Let me get that.
1: Was that the oven? Yeah, that's amazing. That's great. Oh, yeah. Are you baking You're baking right now? now?
0: <laughs> I <laughs> that is the dough for my beignets that I will be frying <laughs> when we finish. Well, if I had known that, I would. Like, we would have
1: interviewed you. In person. I was about to say this would have been a different. would have been a different ask. <laughs> You know, to come back to like, you know, your expertise for a moment. In the book, you talk about your time in France and, you know, how it's influenced your pastry game. And, but you're also, you also really foreground your role as a Southern woman, you know? Uh, I'm curious, like, how do you meld, you know, these very traditional French pastries? And, you know, I don't know as much about cooking, but I know there's a, a dogma attached to kind of the how and process a lot of times with French cooking. How do you meld, like, meld that and those methods with your Louisiana roots?
0: When I was in France, I was introduced to this whole other way of desserts. And that way was beautiful desserts that... Tasted as good as they looked. And they weren't as sweet as the desserts I grew up eating. So I think, like, even more so than, like, me trying to recreate these very specific French pastries. It's just kind of taking some of those elements about, like, the aesthetics, which I'm pretty sure helped my Instagram game from the beginning. (laughs) Um, As well as, like, you know, focusing on flavor and, you know, letting some of those really tart elements shine through which you see in my like my lemon surprise tart or my passion fruit tart. So, yeah, I think it was just kind of like it informed my style, which isn't, you know, squarely in any one category, even though I do celebrate many of those very like traditional Louisiana dishes or even traditional French things like crepes or Mm. madeleines Mm. or the souffle.
2: Of all the recipes in the book, and of course, as we mentioned in between, you have all of these beautiful passages about your family and your travels. Which recipe in the book is the most meaningful to you?
0: I would say the dinner rolls, and it's because they're really delicious, and <laughs> the recipe has been in my family over a hundred years, which is just mm. like mind-boggling to think about, mm. and just like knowing what that recipe has endured. Mm. Um, and also knowing how organically my older sister and myself have adapted that recipe so that it can survive because my great, great aunt Hester, who made it originally, you know, she developed arthritis in her hands as she got older Hmm. because kneading dough is like, you know, this repetitive movement that you're doing all the time. You know, whereas we have the luxury of a stand mixer, so it's, it's definitely that recipe. And like, for me, like, it's not any holiday without them. Which one
2: is your favorite one to bake yourself?
0: Hmm. I bake so much. <laughs> i like, my mom's favorite is definitely the biscuits. It's like, she cannot stop making them. Like when she comes to visit, like when she went to visit my older sister in Boston, who has, you know, two under two. She was just like, every day she was making biscuits. And it's like, okay, mom. But she was freezing them so that my sister could just like have them to to bake. And I told my mom, I said, when you retire, I'm going to put you to work. Um, Because I don't know if you've ever been to an Italian restaurant where they have the Nona in the window, like making the pasta by hand. I was Uh like, mom, I'm going to start a little place. I'm going to have you in the window, (laughs) happily, merrily, making those biscuits. (laughs)
2: I would definitely patronize.
1: I will be there. Yeah. I've been on a biscuit yeah. kick uh lately. This it feels right in line.
0: Yeah. But I, I guess something I like to make, it would have to be a pie or a tart because living in New York, it's something I can like take somewhere. Cause for me, baking is all about sharing with other mm. people. So um actually I love the better together tart. It's super easy to make, it's super delicious. Yeah.
1: So, some years ago, you were a full-time lawyer, you know, baking on the side, auditioning for the Great American Baking Show. And now, you've got your own cookbook at one of the biggest food publishers out. That happened in a relatively short amount of time. Some of your, like, biggest dreams in food have already come true. So, I'm just, like, curious, what comes after that? What do you hope for on the other side of all this?
0: I definitely have more goals. I have more stories I want to tell. You know, I've been contributing to New York Times cooking and some of my most popular recipes are savory Louisiana recipes like my shrimp etouffee. So I definitely I want to tell more stories and share more recipes about Louisiana, whether that's on TV or in a book or hopefully both. (laughs) That's definitely a goal. And um, listen, I am a I am a big believer in writing down your goals so that you can manifest them, or they can manifest mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, right now I am like very focused on marketing this book because I also understand that, you know, if your first big thing is a success, it just opens up all the other doors so much more easily. But, you know, I definitely, definitely want to write another book. And, you know, I want to have a television show. I actually, I recorded a digital show with foodnetwork.com that came out earlier this year. It's called Valerie Bakes Your Questions. And it was so much fun. And, I want more. It's (laughs) like it's like once you get (laughs) once you get a taste for that kind of thing, it's like, all right, adding this to like the list of things we're about to hustle out. So,
2: (laughs) well, honestly, the book is beautiful and it's gotten incredible reviews on just about like every site that you can buy it like I'm talking like 4.9 and up stars. Uh, so it seems like people are loving it. And I I think you're going to get a crack in all these things you're trying to hustle out. I have a good feeling
1: about yeah. it. Oh, yay.
0: <laughs> I hope so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Valerie, for joining us here. So we really appreciate it. and uh, Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, we're excited to see what comes next for you. Yes.
0: All right. It was great talking with you guys. And um, people can follow me on social at Foodie in New York and keep in touch with what's going on. And you can find all the places to buy the book over there. but. Yeah, it's for sale pretty much everywhere.
2: For Colored Nerds was created by me, Brittany Luce, and Eric Edicks. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producers Alexis Williams, Willis Arnold, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Casey Holford is our technical director, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And special thanks this week to producer Chantel Holder once again for her work on this episode. Thank you so much, Chantel. Lastly, we love hearing from listeners. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. Like, please tell us, have you baked from Valerie's book? Do you want to bake from Valerie's book? Do you think she was robbed? Are you ready to see her on Food Network? Let us know. We want to hear it all. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds and never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen.